It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by HBO's Insecure. Creator writer star Issa Rae returns to HBO for a 10 episode fourth season that finds our favorite characters evaluating their relationships, new and old, in an effort to figure out who and what comes with them in the next phase of their lives. Critics hail the fourth season as quietly groundbreaking. Nominated for eight Emmys, including Outstanding Comedy Series and Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for Issa Rae. Welcome to Screen Doc, New Wire's weekly movie podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the executive editor-in-chief critic, joined, as always, by Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large, and a very special guest this week. I'm very excited to welcome Ted Sarandos, Netflix co-CEO and chief content officer. That is a newish title for you, so congratulations. Uh, Thank you, Eric. I feel like we timed this perfectly in that respect. And <laughs> watching this as opposed to listening to the podcast later, you'll see that Ted's Zoom background shows just how dedicated he is to being on Netflix campus, even when uh, you can't go into an office these days. Very impressive. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great time to, to have you here. Really appreciate you coming on because, uh, you know, so much going on in the world right now, I think, has, has really led us to rethink how we watch uh, movies and TV, how entertainment is consumed. And look, everybody has an opinion about Netflix. It is a thing that people do and and for many of us it is you know sort of threaded into our lifestyles but i would venture to say that you might have a more informed opinion than some people and also maybe a little bit biased too so uh, i think it's a good opportunity for us to talk through sort of uh how you've been sort of dealing with a lot of the changes of the last few months and sort of looking to the future we have a lot of different questions and, and we could go on a while but we're gonna grill you ted yeah, we're ready. You know how it goes. I would expect nothing less from you, Anne. <laughs> around here, but uh, but it, but there's so much to get into because um, because of the, just how much has been changing. And you know, your your fourth quarter report said that Netflix added 10.1 million paid subscribers, which I think is about almost three million more than the company had predicted it would reach during that period of time. And the second, so, I think, yeah, in the second quarter. So, yeah, and then I think what, what's worth uh, starting with on that level is, you know, we're all seeing an uptick in uh, behaviors at home and, and whether it's traffic metrics or streaming and so forth. Just how sustainable do you think this is for, for where you're at right now? And, and how has this popularity impacted the kind of film and TV shows uh, that you can support with, um, you know, with such a, such a robust audience? Well, remember before this, everyone, you're, you're, the, the narrative was always that there's too much to watch on Netflix. So no one's, no one's saying that anymore. Uh, I think people have obviously a lot more time. And what they are figuring out is, um, is that you know, you're able to find things that really matter to you um, because we have so many, you know, so many projects going on all the time. And it it's really is built you know, so that we can be, have your favorite film or your favorite TV show or your favorite doc, and for everybody, that's a different pro. That's a little bit different. What that what that film is. 
So that's one the kind of benefit of having what appears to be a lot of volume is really that it's not all for you, uh, but the things that are for you are really fantastic. Um, so in general, I think we've been able to, probably one of the more gratifying things I heard from anybody during this uh, period uh, was from Guillermo del Toro a few months ago. And he said, called me and said, I realized that um, there are three things that I must have to live, uh, food, water, and stories. And having access to new great films has been a lifesaver for me. And I, hopefully that's true for a lot of people. I think it probably is. So you've been using up a lot of the content though. And um, with the pandemic, there's been a bit of um, a hiatus. And we hear that you guys are getting back up and, and running in different places around the world. Where is yeah. that in terms of uh, production and how is it going to affect your flow and, and how you're spacing out all the content? Yeah, well, we're, we're mostly in production everywhere um, outside of North America, meaningfully. Um, so, and remember the early days of this, uh, South Korea and uh, Iceland and, it was like a, and Sweden, there were a few pockets that uh, were not affected by shutting down production. Uh, that we, and what was great about it is that we were able to, in those places, really get a handle on the kind of safety protocols uh, that both made the sets safe, but I think more importantly, it made everybody feel safe um, so that the, you know, they could do the work. So it wasn't just, you know, you're not going to get sick is you're going to, you have to come and be able to do the work. Um, and so what we found is, is that we were able to uh, use uh, different kinds of safety protocols around testing, uh, also around uh, separation of the sets and populations on sets so that you can uh, literally do color coding and have uh, safety groups of the of folks so who you're exposed to during a production, um, how to, what, what it's like to work in PPE all day, um, you know, to meaning shields and face mask and um, so, and, and I'm getting to understand all those things and apply those kind of best practices all over have helped us to um, be pretty far ahead of the curve in, in North America as we're starting to open up now. So we, we did finish, we did do a couple of days that we picked up on, uh, right before we shut down, uh, we were in the last couple of days of production on Ryan Murphy's movie, The Prom. Uh, that right. we've since gone back and picked up uh, some five the shooting days that were missing there uh, with the full cast and crew. Um, we've finished the Adam Sandler movie, Hubie Halloween, which, uh, as the title indicates, it's a Halloween movie and it'll be ready for Halloween, uh, with the pickup days that it had, we had to pick up, uh, on the back lot of Universal. Um, so we are pretty, and then we'll starting up in, in, uh, in Canada, uh, as well as additional productions in the U S, uh, this and next week. So, um, I, I do feel like it is one of those things where. Um, we're at that phase of life here where we have to figure out ways to keep people safe and work in the environment that we live in. And this is the environment we live in right now, unfortunately. And what kind of hurdles have you experienced though? Have there been any setbacks? Um, well, there was one in the, you read in the press yesterday, uh, this past week, uh, we have a, a show in uh, Spain called Elite. It's very popular all over the world. Uh, and we had a cast member test positive uh, and we shut down production and, uh, did the contact tracing and sterilized the sets and all that work and we're uh, and we're back up and back in production. So to me, it's so, like the the art of this is that piece of it, not necessarily anticipating there won't be setbacks. And you bond all your projects yourself. Uh, Correct. Netflix does. So Correct. whatever happens, you have to bear, bear, carry the cost of Correct. it. And, and what's really another thing that's really been great, Anne, is that 
you know, we've, we figured, you know, this is, there's a lot of new protocols. There's a lot of uncertainty about what production looks like and feels like uh, going forward. But um, we we're finding is that the other side effects of the, of this is that the sets are run so much very smoothly uh, and the production days are very, are incredibly efficient uh, because people are definitely paying attention uh, and they, you know, they're do, doing the work and there's fewer people to trip over on sets and, there's a lot of those kind of things going on that actually make the productions move a little bit smooth, more smoothly. Um, but remember, one of the one of the roles of any great director on his set is, or his or her set is to um, make sure everyone's feeling good. You know, that is something that the, that directors always do. So the idea that you're kind of constantly taking everybody's temperature, not literally, uh, but taking people's, you know, reading the room and how are people feeling, uh, is something that the you know great directors do anyway. And this has kind of created an environment for them to be very, very mindful uh, of uh, how people are feeling. All right. So we've established that there will be Netflix movies in 2021, no matter what, because that is something that a lot of people ask about, you know, what, what's going to happen is there just not going to be stuff for a little while, which is good to know. But, you know, the, the other oh, thing, yeah. not even that, Eric, to be honest with you, we've got, like I said, we, we have the other thing that we're because we work so far, we work pretty far out on our series uh, and our and our films. Uh, so we, we were, by the time the shutdown came, we would miss some shooting days for sure. Uh, but then we wound up, you know, getting back to work in post-production relatively quickly. Um, where, but, but we were also had the interruption of folks who work in those areas uh, with kids at home, not in school and needing, uh, tending to family emergencies and everyone's, the demands on everybody's time, you know, clearly got different. Uh, but if there, but, but the, the, you shouldn't feel much of an interruption in the flow of programming. In fact, we've not moved programming uh, meaningfully uh, because of the pandemic, uh, because we had so much coming. And we've also picked up, as you have reported on, uh, uh, several f feature films as well from uh, studios who intended to release some theatrical. Sure. I think the other thing that, that's worth noting is that even if, uh, even if the uh, you know, delivery method on your end hasn't changed, some of the other ways that these movies might sort of be introduced to the world have, and film festivals are probably the biggest dramatic shift in terms of our ecosystem um, that, you know, we just don't have them the way that we normally would. And I, I would assume that if uh, this was, a, you know, the, the world as it was five months ago, that the many Netflix titles that you were looking to launch this fall would be launching the Telluride or Venice or Toronto and so forth. Yeah. And of course, you're not going to any of the festivals. So can you talk us through a little bit in terms of the logic behind that decision and um, just sort of how you arrived there. I mean, we were talking to Terry from Mo a few months ago about how at Cannes this year, you were going to have a dramatic return to that festival. And now you're not at any. Spike. Yeah. And you can imagine my dis my personal disappointment because how much I really love that part of this part of the year too, um, to be there, to be at those festivals. And I am looking forward to their return. Um, I did, you know, we had to make this decision back in March. Um, and at that time it looked, you know, pretty bleak. Um, and the idea of getting folks, you know, together to go to the mountains and watch movies in small dark rooms didn't seem that appealing to a lot of people. Um, and not only that, remember we have, when we had to commit to those festivals in that same time frame, the films were in various states of being complete. And I thought, we thought, we thought that having uh, filmmakers uh, spend that time in an editing room instead of with their families um, was probably not a great trade-off. Uh, on top of the fact is I kind of wrapped my head around you know, we're in a year where there's no Olympics, there's no Republican National Convention, no Democratic National Convention. Uh, there's a lot of things that aren't going to happen this year 
that the urgency of the film festival didn't seem to supersede that. Um, and that, um, and that the, you know, just saying that we're just gonna take the year off, not send, because we certainly did not want to force a filmmaker to go. And we certainly didn't want to send an employee uh, against if they were nervous about it um, to go off to a festival somewhere. Uh, when, you know, we just, I think it's, it's an okay thing in a year where we don't have all those big events happening that we may not have a, a film festival in the mountains or on a beautiful island this year. Uh, and then we'll be back next year, I hope. And I understand you've been supportive to the festivals themselves uh, financially in a 100%. tough time. Yeah, and exactly. it's a very tough time. And I know that these festivals are, and I think the, and I can understand the temptation to try to make it work uh, because so much of the funding of these organizations comes from that event. And that's what we tried to, um, to cushion some of that by making by financial consideration for, to the festivals, even though we didn't go. So we all know that Netflix is not in the theatrical uh, business, um, and, but you used festivals all around the country and the world. You used regional festivals as a way to put your films up on the big screen and build um, word of mouth uh, around the country. What are you going to do to replace that with uh, a very robust fall slate that you have coming up with uh, trying to get attention for uh, awards and so on? What's the plan? Um, we'll, we'll probably, you know, we'll, we'll make sure to give folks like yourselves uh, access to see the films the same way you would have if you're at the festival um, and just try to make sure that we have some way of, of doing, of, of seeding that. One thing that's interesting is the folks who cover the industry um, are hungry for information, obviously, and hungry for story. And, and we, I think we have an incredible slate of films this year um, with some of the, you know, uh, Aaron Sorkin, Charlie Kaufman, David Fincher, Spike Lee, Ron Howard. Uh, Ryan Murphy. I mean, it's a really phenomenal slate of, of films and directors um, and who, are, who definitely want their, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get out there the best we can. I think the main thing is, is we are programming for film lovers and film fans. Uh, and I've been uh, mostly focused on trying to get delivered the films to them as quickly as we can and on the same plan that we've scheduled for them. So I don't want to hold so back. So it's and, mostly November, December kind of, kind of thing or, or later on? Yeah, I mean, those you are dated a lot of them. Rough, yeah. Roughly when we planned, roughly when we planned the release of most of these films, um, uh, so that we um, and we know, and I think we said we hope that people are like yourselves are excited about the films and excited about uh, the work that was done, uh, and we'll do the things you would have done if you were um, seeing them in mountains instead of at home. And you'll be opening up the Egyptian and and the Paris uh, for for folks to see the, the films. Can, do you have yeah, a plan for that? Can. Yeah. As soon as we can. You don't have, yeah, okay. Well, let, let's ask Ted the Desert Island question, and Okay. I know we've got a lot of movies coming out this Silly fall. Silly question. But I mean, look, I, I can't wait to see Mank. Uh, there, there's a bunch of stuff on this list, obviously, that you ticked off that, that sounds interesting. But, you know, if, if you were stu stuck in, in a desert island, you could choose one. I mean, let, let's be clear. We're not saying this is the best film, but what, give us a movie you're really excited about. Um, I, I really, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm incapable of it. I'm incapable of it. Because the, honestly, this year, it's like, it is a, um, it's a really an embarrassment of riches, let's say, in terms of not just who did the, made these films, and the, but, but the films they made. Uh, I think it's spectacular work. Um, David's work in Mank, I mean, it's a movie that you know, I, I do think there's something to that movie that, you know, even a unbelievably accomplished directors have a hard time getting made. Uh, and we saw that with Marty with Irishman last year. Um, and I think when you saw what, what, what it came to the screen, uh, it was, you know, it delivered on all the promise and all the, 
the, the years of passion to get it made. Uh, and I think that that's that David has done that incredibly and it with Mank. Um, I, I think George Clooney's Midnight Sky might be his best director directorial work ever. Um, uh, it's in his performance is fantastic, but the movie is incredibly accomplished. Um, so I, and, and Ryan Murphy is going to knock your socks off with a big, huge musical with the prom. Um, I saw that on Broadway. I'm excited. Oh yeah. yeah. Especially with the cast. You've it's got Nicole and Meryl and, and yeah. Gordon. I mean, it's everybody. Yeah. And I think because you had seen it, I figured you had seen it in earlier um, uh, releases, but um, Chicago 7 from Aaron Sorkin, um, I'm super proud of it. That's a, a moment. That's a movie, by the way, that I think is uh, as in the moment and contemporary as possible, even though it's a period film, uh, with a film packed with incredible performances. So I, I can just keep going. I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'll go through the whole list if I do, but and then also, you know, we're already out there with some of the really accomplished work, like from Spike uh, on the Five Bloods, which, you know, wonderful was, uh, movie. Yeah, it's fantastic. So um, anyway, I, I, I'll keep going. But if you if you make me do the desert island thing, we'll be here. I'll take a full hour. <laughs> it's got to be a big island. Well, let's <laughs> let's rewind for a second and look at last year. As you mentioned Irishman. And obviously, if we were talking about. Uh, a, a year ago, we'd be having a very different conversation. There was so much that was sort of anticipated around this movie, the cost of it, the theatrical rollout and so forth. When you go back and look at that, what do you think you might have done differently? How do you sort of assess the way that that happened now that, you know, we're in a very different climate with a, a totally different range of, of movies that you're about to put out in the world? I don't know what would be different, to be honest with you. I mean, I think the movie is incredible, incredibly accomplished for what Marty set out to, to, to the film that he set out to make. I don't think, you know, I think the um, because of the running time um, and the, the deliberate pacing of the film, I don't know that it would have been a different uh, commercial output in terms of if it was released in theaters. And uh, I say running time just because how many shows can you do one or two a day? So I just don't think that the commercial prospects for the movie theatrically, I don't think would have been, uh, you know, wouldn't have been uh, stellar, I should say. Uh, but I can tell you it was a hugely commercial film for Netflix, meaning it's one of our top 10 most watched movies ever. Um, and it, you know, 10 Oscar nominations and unbelievable reception with critics and fans. I don't, I don't know what I could, what we could have done any different. Uh, or would would I you spend at that level again? Do you think? Oh, is no that question. really I mean, in your plans? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to sound like a, a geek, but you know, one of the ways that we measure, you know, the success of a film is uh, is something we internally think of as relative efficiency, like re relative to how else you could have spent the money, would you've got more people watching something? Uh, and by that metric, the film is wildly successful as well, meaning that we couldn't have spent it any better, even at that level. Well, speaking of commercial viability, that was of Roma too last year. Right. Well, speaking of, I mean, there's, there's two different worlds here that we're talking about because you've also got these incredibly commercial films that have done very well on Netflix, The Old Guard, Spencer Confidential, Extraction. It's been very interesting because we haven't had a traditional summer blockbuster season. So sort of want, curious how, what you've gleaned from the success of these films and, and uh, sort of what it portends about the future of, you know, production for films that are made on that level for that kind of audience. Yeah, no, it's been a really huge summer for for our for our big action tentpole films like Old Guard and, uh, uh, and and you certainly mentioned the others and uh, uh, Project Power that just came out with Jamie Foxx, which is also doing great. Number one about on Netflix right now. Uh, and these are what I love about these these success stories is that they're um, slightly more adult takes on superhero movies and comic book stories. 
and and there and that the the diversity of the folks on screen and behind the camera uh, that are having such success is something I'm really really proud of. You know, uh, uh, Gina Prince, by the way, by the way, who did uh, who directed all of them. So, so she, uh, by the way, why, I don't know why anyone was surprised. Every movie she's made. She's always phenomenal. made good movies. Always. Exactly. From the beginning. Uh, since Love and Basketball. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> phenomenal films. And the idea that, you know, that she would take on this, you know, traditionally male uh, role of this big, you know, big star driven action movie with a big budget and just crushed it, just crushed it. Um, and I think it's opened up the world to, to her, to her, but also I think to, for people to be much more open-minded about who directs these films. Uh, which I think is a really is a great outcome. Um, and when are we going to see the next one? <laughs> well, it, it is sequel ready. I would say that it was a sequel ready. So, well, uh, hopefully that, that that'll come along. So, you guys, um, you get this all that you get this question. I can't. I have to ask it. I mean, you share uh, some of the numbers in success, right? And then you don't share the numbers. You choose to be very selective about what you tell us. Um, there is no transparency there. Is that something you really want to hang on to? Or are you going to stick to your guns on that? We're pretty transparent. Filmmakers mm -hmm. must pressure you about getting those numbers. Yeah, no, we're pretty transparent. You see, most of the things I would look at and say, the things that are, you know, uh, material uh, investment, I mean, I think it's, a fa it's fair to, the, uh, to everybody to get those numbers, to get that number out. So people say, hey, are, are these people just recklessly spending or not? Uh, and <laughs> But I think, you know, an investment in it, I don't know that it uh, changes things if to, to talk about all the films that way, but I do think when we, the big material ones that we tout going in, I think we owe you the answer coming out too. So that's why we've been more, much more uh, transparent about that and including things like the top 10 list that gives you a sense. We love that. Yeah. Sense of working. Yeah, it's really helpful yeah. when, when we got rid of a, bo a traditional box office column, we needed stuff like that to sort of, to sort of break it down. Yeah. I think one of the things that's also worth looking at, you know, when, you, when we see what is successful on Netflix, a lot of it, you know, is not surprising because it's maybe something that leans into, you know, uh, the, a new story like Jeffrey Epstein or it's, uh, you know, a reality series that, that has very broad appeal. Um, yeah. You probably know that that's not always my sensibility personally. And, and I, I love that, you know, sometimes Netflix really does get behind auteur uh, filmmakers who, who, you know, do need, you know, a lot of critics and, and festivals behind them to sort of lift them up. But I guess what I'm wondering is, since we can't always see these numbers, I always assume that that audience is more niche. That that's just, it's, it's just not going to be as many people excited about that stuff that there is for, you know, whatever else is out there. And so Tiger I guess King. Wondering, Tiger <laughs> King or whatever, right? I mean, that's the most the obvious. The Netflix show of the season. Yeah, right. So, so I guess with, with stuff like that doing so well, how, how do you justify supporting the more kind of eccentric auteur work out there? Look, it's a, it's a big 10. I mean, that's the beauty of the, you know, as, as Netflix is, as the viewing base is get, gets bigger and bigger, um, the, it's, it's a big 10. And what I don't want to do is make sure that, we want to make sure that those opportunities are available to people. And as we get bigger, it should be more opportunity, not less. And what I've seen in every kind of iteration of the entertainment business, as it got bigger, the opportunities kept getting smaller. Um, you think about it in, um, certainly in the theatrical business, right? As bigger, as big as the box office has become, it's still, it's primarily, you know, uh, carved up into a few big tentpole films that, you know, drive a, a ton of box office that are basically very similar kinds of movies that people go see. 
Um, and you'd think that as the box office grew, that it'd be easier to get on screens and it's harder to get on screens today. Um, but, but as the video, I remember back in the video store days, uh, for me that it was the promise of home video was it would democratize distribution for small, interesting films. So if you didn't live in New York and LA, you'd still get to see a great film. Uh, but then what happened is all the shelf space wound up going to the blockbuster movies. And the same thing kept happening over and over again. And what I'm finding, you know, so I'm, I'm in, incented not to let that happen as Netflix grows around, around the world and that we always have a, a, a place in, under, in the tent uh, for great filmmakers to tell their stories. And if they do it really, really well, the chances are it could be uh, you know, received in very kind of mainstream viewing numbers, um, which is, that's, that to me is the marvel of all this is when you've got people talking about uh, films they otherwise wouldn't have seen at all, uh, uh, let alone having them so accessible to them, even in small towns all over the world. Have this you learned anything I, interesting from the pandemic in terms of people yeah. watching strange things? I think Eric yeah. is gonna say the same. Well, you know, the great thing, I'm sure you both will love this, is that um, the, the, the growth in, in documentary, not just, not just Tiger King, uh, but documentary. <laughs> the great thing about somebody finding something like Tiger King is sometimes it's the first, non-fiction thing they've ever watched. And then they go, oh, this is great. And then it opens up a world to them, uh, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of movies that they never had seen before, that um, once they've spent that time watching The Tiger King, that they're much more open uh, to documentary style storytelling, uh, which then opens them up to a whole world of other films that hopefully takes them all the way into foreign language documentary, and, uh, and that, which we've seen this evolve over the time. So we've seen a, a, a big, big growth though in, um, in, in documentary, uh, around the world during this time. That's fascinating. Also, I love the idea that Narcos is such a successful show that people forget that it's in Spanish. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the subtitles yeah. question is, I think, a really interesting one. There, also, there, there's this other issue, which I, I think is sort of a separate challenge for you, which is older films. I mean, I know when you were a video yeah. store clerk, you've talked about becoming a cinephile by binging in your own way, Kurosawa or whatever. We can't find a lot of that stuff on Netflix, which makes me wonder, especially right now, wouldn't it be great to have a, a wider array of older films available? Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the trade-off that's happening, you know, because I think if you look at it um, in this abundance of choice, is that consumer people, fans, um, are pretty biased to new. I do, I do think that's true, because there's so much to choose from. And a lot of times, you know, the best choice was an older movie, you know, a few years ago. Uh, and I do think I don't want to lose the, the historical relevance of great storytelling, great filmmaking, and the filmmaking that actually influenced this generation of filmmakers. Uh, so we want to make sure that people are grounded in, in, what, in, the, in those films. Um, but I, I do think that one of the trade-offs in all this is, um, I think about it on serious television. Uh, if you pick a show that you really love and you really enjoyed, and how many times have you really loved that show, and then the new season comes out and you don't watch it? Um, I've had it, I do it myself, and, I, and I, uh, I was pointing out to someone before how much I really love Barry on HBO as a good example. I loved everything about it. I, loved, I thought the last scene of the last, of the last episode of the first season of Barry was one of the great episodes of television. Um, and yet I still haven't watched season two. And I, it's just, there's been... You should, it's really good. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm excited to it. But I love the show too, I really yeah. did. But yeah. it's always a question of whether you're promising if you're delivering something new. I mean, that's what's so great about The Crown. Every episode of The Crown is different, yeah. you know? It, yeah. It's, it's it, the way it's read. All right, but so- The, the mark of the cakes though, I'm saying in between season one and season two, there's 600 new things that came out and the history right. of everything ever made is still there. So that's the whole new thing that's, you know, that makes it tougher and tougher. Uh, to you know, for, on the catalog side. 
So Eric and I are now heading into the ways that you are facing tougher competition right now. Um, and you've got, um, uh, for example, Disney Plus uh, being uh, the family site. You know, they, you're still not abandoning that audience, though. You're still uh, leaning into family oh, yeah. material. You're not going to cede that to them. I mean, you might be losing people in that area, though. No, we're, we're very excited about the space. As you know, we've talked about uh, our investment in, in, in feature and television animation um, is, in, is huge and important. Uh, some of the greatest animators in the history of cinema are making their next projects at Netflix over the next three years. Uh, and we're super excited about it. This, uh, in, in Q4, we've got uh, Over the Moon coming from Glenn Keane, uh, which I think will kind of, it's a very, um, it's a, a beautiful film. And I think illustrates the level of commitment to this space that we will have ongoing. And remember, the great Disney animators, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid. Um, and I do think that we'll have, uh, and that we have a, a lot of projects right behind it um, from, from filmmakers of incredible note. Um, we announced yesterday some of the cast information of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. We can't wait. <laughs> oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Stop, stop motion animation. Um, it's really phenomenal. Um, and I, so I think our investment in that, in that space is, is, is meaningful and long-term. Uh, and you'll see, you know, not just the, what's, what'll be new, Anne, is that most of the studios over the history of this have released, you know, w one film a year. Um, and we are kind of geared up to do that several times a year. So we're really excited That's about amazing. that. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, more, more generally speaking, what do you make of the way that the so-called streaming wars has progressed into this particular moment? I mean, again, if we were talking a year ago, it was all hypotheticals. Now you've got HBO Max, you got Hulu, Amazon, P I mean, there's just like a whole ecosystem has sort of come together, but at the same time, different levels of success, different launch dates. So, so how are you sort of tracking all of that? Yeah, if we look, we've been, um, I'd say we've had big competition from the beginning of our of time at Netflix. You know, I've joined the company 20 years ago and we were just mailing DVDs around. Uh, people forget we were, Blockbuster was a real behemoth back then to us. Um, uh, and Walmart was- They tried you to buy you. Yeah, <laughs> so you're competing with with Walmart and Blockbuster in that space. Uh, and I think even getting into this, in, when we got into the, into the uh, streaming space, um, you know, we of course expected big competition. And you think about the ecosystem of, all, of every film in every theater, every film on every DVD, every hour of television watched and all those things. It's an enormous business. Of course, there's gonna be competition for the space. We never expected to run away with it. Um, and, and what we really have done is as people have come and gone as competitors in this space, is we mostly focus on the fans. And if we focus on the fans instead of the competition, that's, to me, that's looking forward instead of looking over your shoulder. Uh, and you're a lot less likely to trip if you're not looking over your shoulder all the time. So those folks have got a great history of making TV and film. Uh, they're basically doing it. Uh, they're still making TV and film. They're just releasing it the way we do. Um, and I think that's the kind of, that's the biggest change in the dynamic is, you know, how the consumer, uh, how, how the consumer gets to the programming and then how is it monetized. Hmm. But some of these streamers have deeper pockets, finally. You generate an enormous amount of income. It's huge. What is it, $20 billion a year or something? But um, Amazon and Apple especially just are willing to spend. That doesn't always win the race, though, does no. it? No. Um, I would say the one thing I remember in our, when we first got going, when we got big deep pocket competitors come at us, 
And there was this big thing about um, big companies always eat little companies. And we were, you know, so a lot of people got anxious about it. And it, it, if you look back in history, it's really not always true. But what is always true is that uh, fast companies can outrun slow companies. And so one thing about Netflix is we've been super nimble and super adaptive. And uh, I think it's our adaptability, you know, that went from mailing DVDs around the U.S. Uh, to streaming, to international, to global, uh, certainly to, to original, from original series to original film, original film to original unscripted to original animation. Uh, these are all massive adaptations of the business that have, take, that have taken place. We've only been doing original films for going on five years now. It's and amazing. If you think about, you know, and you yeah. saw it coming. You saw that they were going to, that the studios were going to finally figure out that they were yeah. helping to build you and withdraw the content. So you saw that coming. Yeah, I mean, I just, I think the idea that, that, that the world will become, that, 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 that they would want to compete with us in the space, so therefore they wouldn't want to sell to us. That was the motivator for getting into original series, you know, back in 2013. Right, so let's go back to the theater question. I mean, do you think that the theaters are, t are completely doomed by the pandemic? And I know this was something that you wanted to ask, so I apologize for jumping on it, but I just, I feel like we need to, uh, we need to get into this question because, you know, there, there is a real sense that, you know, we don't know what the future is going to look like. Is this something that was already happening and, you know, basically just got accelerated? Yeah, hastened. I, I think it's, I think it's a lot of, um, I think it's part of the human condition, right? To think things are never going to get any better or then things are never going to get any worse. Uh, and then we're usually surprised or disappointed when they, when they are. Uh, and I do think that the underlying dynamic of people want to go out have a you know can have a night out in town and seeing a movie is a great way to do that um i think that underlying call is still going to be there um i do think that the audience was migrating um and what happens is i think what it takes to get people away from their big screen tv um uh the bar for that keeps getting raised so movies get bigger and more spectacular uh which again narrows narrows what is out there i think i, mean, I think that dynamic had been happening for the last couple of years um, but I don't, I don't think this is dooms, the dooms, the theatrical experience. I think it comes back. Um, I hope it does. I'm a huge fan of go, doing it myself. Um, but I do think what it does is it opens up the, the, the field of what kinds of movie people uh, come to expect to watch at home. Um, I think that you brought it up earlier, Eric, those kind of big, spectacular, special effects driven films um, that people are used to saying that's the kind of, that's the only kind of movie they see anymore. Uh, but the, the fact that some of those movies are premiering at, at home as well um, is a change in the, in the, in the expectation of, uh, of entertainment delivered at home. But as the studios have given up on so many of the genres that we all grew up loving, um, many of those things are being made for streamers now instead of, of theaters. And that and just, trend is going to continue, I'm afraid. I, think, I wish they would take the chance to make more risky movies and put them out in theaters, but I don't see them doing that somehow. Yeah, look, I, I think there was a time when, you know, you, a movie basically would, you know, you'd be paid for with movie tickets and DVDs and long-term syndication. Uh, and those three things are really not on the table right now. So um, that's gonna be one of the, and, and two of those three things, are are likely not to come back for, you know, like the, the, the obviously sale of DVDs and uh, syndication, television syndication, the more that the, the studios become vertically integrated, the less likely they're going to be selling their, their, their programming to other, other players. So right. two of the three things that used to fund those movies that we all fell in love with 
um, are, are likely not to not to return. And I think going to the movies will be another will, will be something that will return. Uh, and I don't know what form it takes or what the financial models are, uh, but I do think that the, that urge uh, that calling to go out uh, still exists in all of us. So. Yeah, and, and obviously in different parts of the world, the conversation is different as well. And, and I think that's something we, we want to get into here because so much of your user base is not American. And we may sometimes get very insular in the way that we think about the problems of the world, but Netflix certainly has a strong global audience. It's 67% of your subscribers and you're in 190 uh, countries. So just how much do you expect to continue to expand on that front is perhaps China somewhere in the nearest future in that respect? Well, I would not want to be the one predicting China, what happens in China over the next couple of years for us or anybody. It's a pretty tough op. It's, we look at it, it's a pretty tough place to enter. I'm, I'm glad that we've not spent too much time or money trying to get into China because I know a lot of folks who have and have just been mostly frustrated over the last decade. So um, I think that most, for the most part, China wants China to itself. Um, and it's going to be, they'll make it difficult on uh, non-Chinese companies to operate there. Um, but in general, I think there's plenty. I mean, we've, we're only scratching the surface in most of the world for Netflix. Um, and then if you think about not just um, the membership base, but also the time spent, you know, uh, in the U.S., by way of example, where we're most penetrated, um, only about 10% of the television screen time goes to watching Netflix today. So people are using that, that, that screen for a lot of things um, and a lot of different uh, ways to interact with each other and with other programming. So I do think there's, a, there's an enormous amount of growth ahead uh, as long as we keep telling the stories that people want to hear. Uh, and I think what's great is as we grow internationally, uh, it gives us a, a lens into great international storytellers that tell stories for the world. Um, you know, like La Casa de Papel being such an enormous global sensation. Now that, those, those things just didn't happen in the television world before. And watching foreign language films in the US was super niche behavior. Uh, but as international television is growing in prominence, uh, so is inter so international film is benefiting from that. All right, so I think we should squeeze in some audience questions and obviously uh, we could go an entire another session with the number of uh, questions that we got. There's a lot of different things that people wanna know, but we're trying to focus on the ones that we haven't already touched on. And this one I think is sort of relevant to what we were talking about before, but it's a very specific question with respect to box office. And someone named Kyle submitted this question on Instagram and he says he works at an indie theater that plays Netflix films in theaters or presumably played Netflix films. Movies like Roma, The Irishman and Marriage Story were big sellouts in their biggest theaters for weeks. So the question is why hide box office success from the world when they're clearly doing so well? I, I, I wish that um, I, Kyle, thank you for that question because I wish that was something that was um, the, the, the reporting on that was more nuanced. Because uh, you remember, I think most people reported, I'm not saying you guys did, and I'm not blaming you two, but I think most people reported the box office as an absolute. Uh, and the way they talked about, and Irishman was not talked about as a box office success, uh, even though most screens that showed it were sold out. Um, it just, it was basically relative to the billion dollars of box office uh, on, all the big, on all the big chain cinemas. Uh, it was a small number relative to that. Uh, but every screen, every, every theater who would have it mostly had sold outs at sold out shows those just those rooms tend to be smaller so that's a, that so i think it's a it's a very nuanced thing and it gets lost in the headline uh so that's why we didn't put that's why we didn't promote it out promote the numbers out the box office numbers it's and i just think like i said if we got to, 
Yeah, so I think we can be more nuanced about it. I think that would be a wonderful story because I'm super happy and proud with the number we put out there. And one of the great kind of benefits of the, um, of the major theater chains not booking our films is that they've been, uh, they, they have these phenomenal big scale films like Irishman and Roma uh, play, ex you know, de facto exclusively in independent theaters, uh, that it was a big boon for their business over the last couple of years and will continue to be. I'm curious to see with the change in the windows and the AMC Universal deal, if the big theater chains are now going to change their policy and play Netflix films. Do you think that's possible? I really, yeah, it's possible. I or really you could be Super. forging a deal with them as well? I don't, um, we're not talking, so I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's something that it's a big issue for the studios to work out with them that we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it, where it lands and revisit it. So this is a question from uh, someone named Severine, uh, citing a, a New York Times article uh, called What Actually Happens When TV Episodes Get Pulled? Um, and you were quoted in it talking about uh, a David Cross episode that was taken down because of some, some blackface aspect to it. And um, obviously all of this is against the backdrop of the recent situation with Gone with the Wind on HBO Max. Um, question basically being, uh, is it necessary during this period of time to um, be sensitive to these sort of matters in a different kind of way? Or, or how are you assessing sort of the, the cultural demands on, on accountability for that aspect of storytelling? Look, I think the helpful thing and the more helpful thing than I think than pulling episodes off or banning content would be to help set context you know, that this movie was made at a time when X uh, and have people understand that um, so that these movies aren't lost to history. Um, I watched with great anxiety, you know, the, the, the swirl around Gone with the Wind. Uh, we've, we've had Gone with the Wind in territories around, and we've had it on the U.S. as well. Um, and the conflict of, the, of some of the, uh, some of the, the um, problematic nature of the movie today in context of today uh, versus the the cinematic relevance of Gone with the Wind, and I've had a I had a great conversation with Spike Lee about this when it was when it first came up. And you know, remember Spike op opens Black Klansman with a shot from Gone with the Wind, and he screens Gone with the Wind to his students at NYU every year. Uh, it's one of the most you know sig historically significant films in history. So uh, um, the idea that it was basically banned from television uh, on Hattie McDaniel's last birthday. Um, I don't know what good that does in the world versus helping consumers make good choices and understand what they're watching uh, and to give context, which is what we're driving toward uh, is to be able to provide better context and decision-making about those things. Because remember in a absolute plan of ban of blackface, you wind up banning things that are artistically anti-blackface. Uh, so, and again, it's a, it's a nuanced discussion in a time when the audience doesn't seem to have much time for nuance. Um, so that's, that's what just navigating very tricky waters right now. So Harry Karp asks, to what extent is Netflix open to alternative avenues for bringing on board young or other undiscovered talent through series development and performer showcase, such as Comedy Central Stage or the HBO Workspace? Oh, for comedian, for young comedians? Yeah. Yeah, we've got a great, um, we've got a couple of different projects. Um, the stand-ups is one. We basically have been trying to pioneer new formats um, for a comedian who's up and coming who doesn't necessarily have a, a bulletproof hour, uh, which is a very tough thing to do for a stand-up um, by right. doing 15 minute sets on things like the stand-ups. Um, and, uh, and if you look back now, we've got 
new specials coming up from folks who started off doing those 15 minute sets two years ago uh, and next year. So that's, that's one of the many development tools we have. Uh, we did a show called The Characters uh, where we took uh, standups and writers and where they each got an episode to explore characters. Um, and it was mostly a development tool for us and for them. Uh, and that some of those uh, have turned into big movie stars over the last couple of years. So uh, we think there, it's a really, it's a, it's a focus of ours is to find and keep discovering new talent. Uh, and those are some, some, just a few of the many ways we're doing it. A question here uh, in, uh, in the Zoom chat that I think is, is sort of relevant to that. It's someone asking for advice on, uh, you know, getting into the industry in general, how Netflix is looking at uh, sort of creating a pipeline uh, for, for talent, not just in terms of in front of the camera, but also on, you know, behind the scenes, the, the executives of tomorrow, for example. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm asked as I speak at a lot of um, schools and I think one of the they, they people always ask and, and I, you know, how do we, what's the best way in? Um, and I always think that one of, one of the interesting ways is, is in the internship process while you're in school is one of the, I think the most valuable internship is, to, is at an age, is at one of the agencies. And I say that because um, you get exposed to every aspect of the business very quickly. Um, you're basically on, on, the, on calls with talent, with writers, with lawyers. You're actually hearing the, the way the business works in ways that are in, in very unfiltered ways. So I, I do think that uh, in the, on, their, on their best days, those agency internships are a great way to figure out what you want to do because you're exposed to so much. Um, and we have got, you know, it's funny, we're working on ways like we have internships on our productions, but not necessarily in our company that, that, that's strong yet. Uh, we're trying to, we're developing that now. One of the things that's kind of in conflict is we are a very open information culture. So we, um, our employees are exposed to a lot of information uh, because we think we can run the business better that way. Uh, and we don't have a terrible, you know, very transient population. So we can be more open and transparent with all the employees. And that gets tougher if you know if you have big populations coming and going all the time. Uh, but internships are really valuable. Um, and I'd say that the other thing, if you're talking about work on the creative side, uh, writers, directors, um, you know, I've always, my big advice always is to write and shoot. Um, the beauty of you have an you have an iPhone in your pocket, you can shoot and you can post and you can you get you can get production in your pocket and put it and push it to YouTube and have global distribution. Now there's not a big there's no money in that. Uh, but that's okay. That's not that's sure. That's not what you're after. You're in your first day out of the first day out. Uh, but there's never been a better time to be to have your voice heard or your or your images seen than right now. The barriers to entry are almost zero. Uh, uh, so the, 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 if you if you are a writer, write. If you're a director, shoot, uh, and then just push it around, and you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, I think well, there's so much content now that you're being flooded with it too. And, and to the extent there's so much, you can't even absorb it all at this moment. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have, yeah. I mean, on the other end of that spectrum, there's this question from Steve DeLaro on Instagram and he's saying without box office, uh, do you think that a hundred million dollar blockbusters are financially viable? which is a very interesting question in the context of what you were just talking about, which is the other end of the equation where, you know, doing something really cheap is super viable now. Yeah. And I do think in the big side of it, without the box, I would say the answer to this question though is for sure, for sure yes. You know, these big hundred million dollars or you point out Irishman even more so, uh, those, those, that, the, way that we decide, the way that we define success is like I say, relative to how else you'd have spent the money, did you provide entertainment to the member? 
the truth is yes, and they are very viable and you know, continue to just monetize differently, but very viable. So in the short amount of time we have left, I'd be super curious to hear your thoughts on Tenet because within the next 24 hours, uh, there will be reviews breaking for this film. It's coming out overseas. Um, you know, the, this has been a fascinating conversation to track in terms of the challenges of getting a movie at that level into theaters. And obviously you have not worked with Christopher Nolan the way that you have with some of these other major filmmakers. So it must be fascinating for you after all of that to, to sort of see that contrast and those challenges for, for, for a studio relative to, to, you know, the kind of options at your disposal. Yeah, look, I, I, Chris is an amazing filmmaker and his, uh, he gets to choose how he wants his film to be seen. And that's a, a nice rarefied place to be if you're a director. Most people don't have that kind of clout. Um, and he chooses, this is how he chooses for his films to be seen. That's the thing that makes him excited about making the movie is, th is this part of it too. Uh, and I certainly don't begrudge him of that. And like I said, I, I don't know that we'll ever work with Chris, not because, not out of lack of desire for, for that, uh, for, uh, for my, for myself or for the company, uh, but because that's what his, that's the thing that makes him jump out of bed in the morning to, to go to work. Uh, and I don't, I certainly wouldn't begrudge him of that. Um, uh, but even if it might be, opposite of our business model. Um, so, and I'm a big fan and I'm a friend. So I love that. Uh, so I hope that people do go see Tenet in the theaters and I hope it's successful for them. Well, I, we've covered a lot here. Anne, am I missing anything? I feel no, like- No, we've covered the ground. Ted is, is efficiently uh, <laughs> batting everything back. Uh, thank you so much. Um, and it. and it, we really appreciate your coming uh, to, Share your wisdom with us. Uh, well, by the way, that was watchers. Thank you. One of the things we talked about about as you get bigger internationally, finding new voices and all this thing. And every every year, I'm excited about it. If it was a couple of years ago, it was Bong Joon Ho for Okja. Uh, I think uh, hopefully this year it's Fernando Frias uh, uh, from Mexico, uh, who I, Eric's been a big champion of his film, and yeah, Guillermo, all these folks who have discovered the movie on Netflix and talk about it. Uh, I love to see that happen. I hope it happens more frequently. And a lot of that depends on folks like you, Anne, and folks like you, Eric, who discover these films and, and, and just pound people to go to watch them because you know they're going to love it if they do. Uh, and that, that barrier of subtitles, uh, you know, that Bong so eloquently described as the, the one-inch wall, um, uh, I think will be uh, less and less a barrier to entry for, for film lovers. And they're gonna find great stories and storytellers that they never thought possible. We love hounding people, so we won't <laughs> stop that anytime soon. And appreciate you being subjected to that today as well. So thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. See you later. Bye, everybody. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.